Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Sunday for Sunday, September 17th, 2023. We've got another great show for you this week as the Legal Eagles, David Levine, Kevin Walsh of Broom Law Group, and Oliver Rennick of Schwab Network are standing by to break down all the news and events for the week. So sit back, relax, enjoy this episode of BRN Sunday. We're going to kick things off with a look at what is happening on Capitol Hill. And joining us online, you know them as Legal Eagles, but they're also known to their friends, family, co-workers, and colleagues in the industry as David Levine, Kevin Walsh. Both are principals with Groom Law Group. That's an employee benefits law firm based in Washington, D.C. Eagles, so great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Jeff, as always, it's great to be here. We hope people are getting off to a good start for their fall. And little to no surprise... The DOL is active, and we've got some interesting things to talk about this week. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for teeing that up, David. And Kevin, I want to come to you because we were talking about this could happen now that the Department of Labor fiduciary rule lands at the Office of Management and Budget. So I uh, want to get your thoughts about that. Yeah. So, I mean, we talked about this last week, and last week we, um, you know, just to do a little bit of a behind the scenes, we recorded our segment on Friday morning predicting that DOL was going to send something on fiduciary uh, in the near future. Well, they sent a new proposal over that same day. So Friday afternoon, and it became public that something is in the works uh, Saturday morning. And so where that leads us right now is that the White House is reviewing the Department of Labor's work, and they're going to decide when and whether to publicly release it as a proposed rule. Um, typically, this process takes somewhere between 30 and 90 days, which means that we're likely to know the contents of this of this proposal, you know, either around Halloween or possibly around Thanksgiving or possibly, you know, even later than that. Um, But one thing to keep in mind that we wanted to talk about this week is that, you know, this isn't rulemaking in a vacuum. This rulemaking builds on rulemaking they've done or, or builds on rulemaking they've tried to do kind of Jenga style um, over the past 10 ish years. Um, In 2016, DOL overhauled the definition of fiduciary. Um, that rulemaking would have, you know, really broadened the swath of who is a fiduciary, capturing essentially all distribution in the plan space and IRA space, whether you're a an advisor, a broker dealer, an insurance distributor. Um, ultimately, that rule was killed by the Fifth Circuit. You know, DOL was undeterred. In 2020, they came and they didn't do rulemaking, but they issued some, you know, language in a preamble to to something saying, you know. We know that the definition has a regular basis prong, um, but we think regular basis can be satisfied on the very first contact you have with somebody if you're hoping there's going to be future contact. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've always referred to this as the, you know, you can be in a relationship um, the moment you swipe. Um, then that rule, you know, has run into trouble in Florida. That policy was vacated. There's ongoing litigation down in Texas where DOL filed a brief kind of to support ending that litigation this past week. But, you know, again, the idea that the the first contact can be fiduciary uh, appears to have met its demise once again in Florida and Texas. Um, where does this leave us? It leaves us with DOL in a bit of a box. 
there's a sense that they would like to broaden the scope of who's a fiduciary to capture more brokers, to capture more insurance distributors. Um, but at bottom, you know, it, it seems as though ERISA requires a relationship of trust and confidence. And it's going to be interesting to see how DOL tries to thread the needle between the prior decisions and potentially expanding the definition of fiduciary. And David, I want to come back to you because I, this was released on Friday. Already, um, there have been, I think on Saturday, statements <laughs> statements released from a lot of industry groups, kind of, uh, I don't know if you call it against the, mm-hmm. this rule, but um wanted to get your perspective on this because, of course, you're going to have, I, I like how, de- how Kevin described it as Jenga. I was not very good at Jenga, by the way, but I'm really good at Icebreaker or uh, Don't Break the Ice. That was one of my favorite games. And uh, there has been some, uh, a lot of opponents or people that are against this new rule, at least in its current form. Well, Jeff, you make a great point. And inevitably, with any policy change coming out of EBSA these days, you've seen a lot of litigation, not everyone, but in a number of cases. And I think one of the important takeaways to keep in mind right now is nobody definitively knows what is in this proposal. There is belief it could be getting to the rollover discussion, given the court cases. It could be also addressing uh, annuity products and how they are, and the fiduciary rules applicable there. You've seen some comments from some trade groups on this that that have been out in front of it. The answer is we have to wait and see. And I think for right now, to sort of break it down for the different constituencies, there's clearly, this is offered the, over at the Office of Management and Budget. They're reviewing things. The White House, as Kevin said, there's a, people could say, we want to have meetings saying, why are you even doing this given the court cases and what's got on? We're going to see that. There's If you're interested in that, we, we know people who are, we're involved in like a whole bunch of discussions on this. Then there are those who are going to wait for it to come out and there'll be comments and then a final. So we have to see a little bit. If you're a plan sponsor, everybody's saying it's going to mean this. I've seen a lot of that. For right now, my suggestion, if you're a plan sponsor, is be aware, watch, listen, but you don't have to jump in any one direction. So let's see what we get if you're a sponsor. And for the other folks who who have specific concerns. That's why they're jumping in now. That's why those clients we work with in those areas are. That's the practical uh, discussion for right now. Yeah, well, we don't, you said we don't know what we don't know, right? We, we just don't, we haven't seen anything. So we have to wait up to 90 days as you gentlemen have laid out. Guys, we're gonna leave it there. Always great to talk to you. Look, there, this is a evolving world and we have to see how things are gonna be fleshed out. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back on the program again next week. Thanks for having us on, and thank you, listeners. Bye, gentlemen. Have a great weekend. Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. 
We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses. I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Welcome back. Now we're going to shift gears to markets. Joining us on the line, he's the lead anchor for the Schwab Network, Oliver J. Rannick. Oliver, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for stopping by the program this morning. Definitely. Thanks for having me, Jeff. All right, Oliver, uh, a full week of coverage for you. You get to see the markets in the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. Um, there looks like there's a, almost like a divergence between the economic data and the, what the stock market sees and expects. How do you all piece it together? What, what are your thoughts about the week of uh, that was in terms of trading? Well, um, that certainly is very true that a lot of the last two and a half, three years, I guess maybe four now, have been marked by some um, fairly jarring moments of incongruity between the economic data and how you would think stocks are supposed to respond. Um, some of it has lessened a little bit, um, because when I do think about that incongruity, it really has been those situations where strength in the economy is perceived as a threat to the stock market because of inflation and interest rate hikes and weakness in the economy is welcomed by the stock market because it can mean the opposite. And we are still getting some of that, um, but it hasn't been quite as pronounced because we're more sort of in this mode where the economic situation is better than expected. Uh, everybody thought we were generally going to be in a much worse spot right now at this time this year, and we're not. But the stock market... Um, also has been able to digest it a little bit better uh, than surprising moments of economic strength last year because of a confidence the market has that the Fed has done with their hiking program, basically. So that's where the stock market's been pretty solid, pretty resilient. Um, there are definitely some signs of weakness. I uh, wrote up this week about how big tech companies are sort of faltering a bit without any real negative news flow examples include apple selling off mm -hmm. uh, last week really the last two weeks without any real negative news there was a disputed story about whether or not chinese officials will be able to use iphones and that sent the stock down 10 percent basically over the course of like a week but then another report came out saying it wasn't going to be the case and the stock didn't bounce back and you're kind of getting a few of those examples elsewhere oracle had a good earnings and dropped big. Uh, you had Netflix update investors on their password sharing and their gaming plans, and that stock dropped anyway. So there are these examples. 
Adobe, another one uh, that gave us earnings this week, fine earnings, should be a big player in the AI-driven software and programming world. Um, fell anyway on earnings. Uh, so there are definitely some signs that the big 11-month bull market that's been going on since last October is sort of losing some of that momentum. And there's definitely an argument to be, to be made that we can fault some of the strength of the economic data for that because inflation looks like it has a real potential to come back here. Our numbers continue to impress in the employment world and the pricing of commodities are also starting to go uh, the way investors don't want. Crude oil is rallying. We've got the dollar now rallying too. And yields are still trying to push higher and break out. So you do have kind of the three main inflationary threats from last year starting to come back. And that is basically dollar higher, crude higher, and yields higher. It hasn't broken the stock market yet, but there are some signs that the bull run is a bit weary here. Yeah, and I don't know, although I think we we continue to talk about it and have talked about it for quite some time with you and others on the network. Oliver, I want to ask you, you bring up AI. I want to just ask you what you made of, I think, uh, the Senate Majority Leader hosted the Senate's first AI insight forum. It featured people like Bill Gates, um, others, I guess, briefing members of the Senate about artificial intelligence Obviously, this is a, uh, you know, we were talking several months ago about chat GPT. Now we're talking about NVIDIA. We're talking about um, AMO, I think it's called, another uh, type of uh, or chip chip maker. What do you make about all this talk in Washington? Are they, are they just looking to figure out how to tax this all? And, and, or are they actually looking mm-hmm. to do some privacy, uh, which I think all of us agree is probably needed? Well, I think to your point that, you can easily imagine sort of a future in which our ability to kind of manage AI and keep it under control is uh, perhaps limited. Um, and so I can kind of understand where there are precautions necessary to be taken. And when people like Elon Musk are obviously very, very smart and um, very involved in this type of stuff are saying that we should take it seriously, he doesn't really have any, way to benefit from arguing that it doesn't seem terribly self-serving for him to like argue in favor of AI limits and regulation when all of the analyst community is saying that AI is going to be the big driver of his own company's profits. So I feel like we should probably take what he's saying seriously when he's arguing that we need to, you know, keep it under control at the same time though. uh, It does just all seem very nascent and still, kind of early on so far as far as investors are concerned the biggest impact ai has had is in the hardware picks and shovels kind of build out phase for the likes of nvidia and some of those other chip makers as far as like products and services go there's still as much much proving to be done on what people are going to pay for that is ai driven you know, Adobe is a good example where Photoshop now as a service is going to be able to, you know, click of a button, do things that would have taken you time to otherwise do. So there are definitely obvious low-hanging um, possibilities for the utility of AI that didn't exist for other kind of hype trains the last couple of years with metaverse, blockchain, or, you know, um, even some of like the green energy type stuff that sort of flopped. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a very real 
you know, economic and technological trend that is going to be with us from here on out. Um, as far as like, you know, the government's role in it, it probably is going to play some role, uh, but it doesn't seem to be a limiting factor to companies at this point. Oliver, last question, kind of dovetailing into the artificial intelligence conversation. I don't know, you remember this, these two words, robo-advisor. A lot of firms created robo-advisors to help individuals automatically save and automatically diversify their portfolios. Now you're talking – now, not you, but they are talking about layering in artificial intelligence. I'm not so sure I feel confident in letting someone I, – I know I don't feel confident letting someone manage my money without my – direct input. I want to have input into my finances. <laughs> but but this is something where I could see the financial services industry, the retirement industry in particular, taking this technology, layering on what already exists, robo-advisory managed accounts. Where do you kind of see it all kind of playing, playing itself out? Is it is it right now not powerful enough? I mean, I know you're not a technologist, but you're a smart guy. You follow the market. Um, is it not powerful enough to do what we needed to do to adapt to the meme stock world that we've lived through, AMC, GameStop, et cetera? Uh, I'm not sh totally sure, to be honest, but I mean, most of, uh, I think, what advisors would tell you that the main mistake people make are uh, sort of very human, heuristic biases that get in the way of our long-term investing plans. So if you're able to minimize that by just kind of, uh, you know, parking it with an automated uh, you know, decision-making process of, you know, buying what you want or investing what you want when prices drop. They probably could do some people some good. Um, but, uh, I mean, as far as, like, how AI is going to affect the investing world, right now that's showing up in ETFs that use AI models to pick stocks and stuff. I mean, it's essentially just sort of a natural progression of what already takes place with algorithmic trading and investing, uh, which are essentially robots already programmed by humans. I mean, ultimately, this is where some of the discussion about AI becomes a little bit reductive because um, most of a lot of like the applications still today, there are going to be algorithms that are programmed to make decisions on their own, which is artificial in a way, but they're still following a program that's going to be coded by humans, so yep. subject to yeah, they're uh, not, they're biases. Not, yeah, good point. And uh, that's, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about that, you know, they're programmed by human beings. They're not sentient, at least not yet. At least I haven't seen it. But um, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Oliver Rennick, always a treat to talk to you. Thanks so much for your very thoughtful analysis. We look forward to having you back on the program again very soon, my friend. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Sunday. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to. Drop us a line and don't forget for all the latest curated news in lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, aging, so much more, and all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content? Well, visit our website. We're backing in tomorrow with another edition of BRNAM. We'll have a very important and special guest. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes.